You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on our own, we are deserving of destruction, but would you now deal with us kindly and faithfully, as you did to the family of Rahab, that we might see your mercy even now for us sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we're back into the book of Joshua. We took a break last week for the uh, stewardship sermon, um, and we uh, looked at the first chapter of Joshua, now into chapter 2 this week. And uh, the whole book is uh, too long to deal with during this season. We're uh, trying to tackle Old Testament passages in the fall, so sort of have to select highlights here and there to get through it the next couple of months. But the reason why I wanted to preach on Joshua for this season of the fall is because the story of Joshua uh, in this book is one of the places where skeptics point to with objections to Christianity. There are other places in the, in the Old Testament, uh, but this is one of the places that skeptics often uh, point to. Uh, just listen uh, to what one person said in a blog post, and this is representative of the kind of thinking around what's happening in the narrative of Joshua. This person writes in a blog post, The book of Joshua deals with the wars the Israelites fought to conquer the promised land. To make it more realistic, it should be named the book of genocide, as the Israelites exterminate one nation after another and steal their land. No justification is given, is, uh, is given. Greed is simply enough. Christians might argue that the doctrine of forgiveness came later, but that begs the question of who is the God of the Old Testament? Is he a separate God? Did God fundamentally change his personality? Should we not listen to his teachings anymore? Christians are left in a contradictory position of both claiming and denying the actions of the Old Testament God depending on whether it suits them or not. Well, I'd like to take the next two months in part, I mean, not entirely, but in part responding to this sort of statement, uh, because this is uh, representative of the type of concern that you will hear a lot of people have. Maybe you share this concern. I know uh, just off the bat, I can say that I'm, uh, the, a lot of me is sympathetic to what this uh, person is saying, that I once said similar things, and yet, and yet, this uh, blog post demonstrates something Uh, else that is common, uh, that an uninformed point of view that ignores uh, the the whole biblical narrative. Uh, What you're seeing is someone who is at a certain level uh, ignorant of the entire story of the Bible, which uh, ultimately uh, comes to its clarity with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we can't ignore that. What I mean is that in our day, many people are talking Many people are talking, but they don't really know what they're talking about totally. And often uh, such people have platforms that are either well-read, like blogs or books, or even uh, lecterns and pulpits with very large audiences. And I say that and also say, Lord, have mercy on me, you know, seriously, uh, because I'm, I don't want to be just one of the other voices who's talking and doesn't know what he's talking about. 
I'm trying to uh, su submit myself to the, the truth of what uh, we see here in this passage. I attended an academic uh, conference recently, and I was left saying to myself, what the person is saying sounds nice, but is it true? Well, uh, several times I asked myself, what this person is saying sounds nice at a certain level, but is it true? In several cases, I knew that what the speakers were saying were historically false uh, at certain facts, and it left me saying, if this thing that I know is not true that they're saying, what else that they're saying is, is, is completely wrong? And so what about Joshua? Uh, what about Joshua and the types of things that uh, people say about the Old Testament, uh, how can we respond? Well, remember that God told Moses, this is an excerpt from Numbers. God said, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. Now, finally, uh, under Joshua's leadership, after uh, Moses, Israel will cross the Jordan and conquer the city-states of Canaan and divide the land among them. And many will uh, die in the process, and the land will be taken. But that's just the sort of the basic uh, surface story of Joshua, What's really going on here at a deeper level? How can we sort of read between the lines, as it were, to understand uh, the true story of Joshua? Well, the story of Rahab in chapter 2 is, is very important for framing our uh, understanding, first of all, of the, the rest of the book of Joshua. The, the story in chapter 2 of Rahab the prostitute is, first of all, number one, important for understanding the rest of the book of Joshua. And secondly, it's helpful for understanding how God actually works with respect to things like judgment and uh, grace. So I want to sort of flesh out those two, those two ideas, that, that, that chapter 2, that the reason why I thought it was important in skipping some of the other parts of Joshua to leave this story in here, not only is it a well-known story and fun to read, but it's, first of all, helpful for understanding the rest of the book and also understanding the way that God works. And so on that first point about the rest of the book, uh, we're reminded of uh, God's initial word to Abraham uh, back in Genesis when Rahab, uh, the Canaanite, says to the Israelite spies, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Uh, we're reminded of the promise that God gave to Abraham so long ago when Rahab the Canaanite says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And as God himself told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So we see that the land of Canaan is actually occupied territory. Well, how so? Because just consider something like Psalm 24 that says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those therein. That is, the whole world, the whole world, and all the people belong to God. Uh, thus, if God decides that a certain territory belongs to someone, then it's theirs by right. Not only the land, but also those who dwell therein. And if anyone uh, stands in the way of this, they become an enemy of God. 
You see, the main problem is that the occupants currently in the land, the Canaanites, do not worship, for the most part, do not worship the one true God, but they worship false gods. Uh, And God wants Israel to live in a realm where only true worshipers of him will dwell. And this doesn't happen. I'll just sort of fast forward for you and say it doesn't ultimately happen. It never happens. It won't happen until Jesus Christ returns again, that the uh, true worshipers of God will dwell only with other true worshipers of God. But it's a stab in that direction. And we see how uh, God works uh, through this story. And so this leads me to the second point, that this passage helps us to see not only uh, to help us understand the rest of the book of Joshua, but also how God works in general. Uh, Without uh, this passage in Joshua, we would think that the identity of the people of God is purely an ethnic one. Without this passage, we would think that the identity of the people of God in the book of Joshua is purely ethnic, that is, national Israel. But the story of Rahab shows us that the true people of God are those who have faith in him alone. As Rahab says to the Israelite spies in a confession of faith, she says, The Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on earth beneath. Uh, So, by the sparing of Rahab and her whole household, we see God's gracious character, actually, which It's totally opposite of the sentiment that people normally think when they think of Joshua, like that blog post that I just read to you. We also see that the conquest of Canaan need not be absolutely total if if the inhabitants confess true faith in the one true God. There uh, is an exception uh, to the command uh, to Joshua and to Israel to totally destroy, and it's only that. If someone like Rahab confesses faith in the one true God. Well, let's take a closer look at this story in particular to help us understand these two points that I'm trying to make. Uh, Remember, those points are that this passage helps us understand the true nature of the book of Joshua and the true nature of God. Last time, uh, two weeks ago, with chapter 1, we saw uh, God's commission of Joshua to enter the land, saying uh, to Joshua to be strong and very courageous in this task, and that his strength and courage to uh, lead a military campaign will uh, ultimately come from uh, reassurance that God is present with him and present with Israel, and also reassurance that he can find God's law and promises in his word that's written uh, through the hands of Moses. And so after this, Joshua musters the troops and explains what's going to happen uh, to the tribes that they all must cross the, 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 the River Jordan and conquest the land. Um, and uh, uh, bef- before this, though, he, uh, well, after this happens, before they're going to all go into the land, he sends two spies to sort of scope out the territory. And this, by the way, is very good military strategy. <laughs> I mean, he, you can see that Joshua uh, is a seasoned uh, military leader at this point. And remember that Joshua and Caleb were the only two spies decades ago who came back when Moses sent them into the land to scope it out. Among many others, only Joshua and Caleb came, came back with a positive report about entering the land. And it was uh, only because of the reluctance of the other spies and the rest of uh, Israel 
that uh, they were doomed to wander into the wilderness. And so Joshua was allowed to survive the wilderness generation because he was one of the original spies who had faith. And so there's a plot tension here already, that here he is uh, sending in two more spies. Are they going to have uh, the, um, uh, the sort of positive report like Joshua and Caleb before them? Or are they going to be like those reluctant spies, which would be the worst case scenario, you know, and come back with a, a, a sort of a pessimistic report? And the spies, when they go in, they go and they go to a, a house of a prostitute. And I, I'll just say, just as a by the way, this probably isn't a sexual encounter. That it would have been common at the time for prostitutes to manage a sort of inn, a place where they could lodge. It would make sense that that's the type of place where they would go. Uh, and it's interesting in this passage to note that Rahab the prostitute is named, but the two Israelite spies are not. Why might that be? Well, this indicates that she is the main character of this, uh, this story here, and the spies are not. They're sort of um, 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 minor characters, as it were, you know. Uh, and it highlights that the passage is also important for the overall story of Joshua. So what happens? Well, she helps the spies when the king of Jericho discover discovers uh, that the spies are there, and she hides them, and she participates almost as a sort of double agent in their espionage and an act of deception so that they might be hidden, and she'll send them down the, uh, the uh, wrong trail. And then, after this happens, she confesses faith to the spies, faith in God, and begs for mercy for herself and on her household uh, from the uh, inevitable judgment that is to come, that she knows is coming. Because of her faithfulness and admission that the land is uh, Israel's, the spies agree to save her when they come back and conquer Jericho. And they indeed, finally, we don't see this uh, because we cut the passage short, but in in the verses to come, we see that the spies do give a positive report to Joshua, just like Joshua and Caleb before them. Well, essentially, this passage is about Rahab and her family's escape from coming judgment. That mainly what's happening here is helping us to see one Canaanite and her family's uh, escape from the coming judgment of God. Just as Israel escaped God's wrath with the blood that was spread on the doorposts the night before the exodus. The spies will also, later in the chapter, which we didn't have in our reading today, the spies will tell Rahab, when we come back into Jericho, what you need to do is tie a scarlet cord, the the color of blood, on your window and hang it out so we will know which house is yours and spare you and your family. Sound familiar? Like the Passover. And uh, so I want to, at this point, sort of back up on the topic of God's wrath and judgment. It's important when reading stories like this that we understand that all people, all people, 100% on their own, are deserving of God's judgment and destruction. Just consider John chapter 3, verse 16, which you well know, but often forget the two verses that come after it, verses 17 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Fair enough, we know that part, but listen to the next sentence. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Underline that, um, that, that bit. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, without God's mercy, we are all already condemned, all of us, from, uh, from go, <laughs> not based on any sort of uh, misbehavior or mistakes or bad attitudes that we have, but just inherently to us, on our own, we're condemned already. Uh, and uh, this is the reason even Israel needed to mark their doors at the night of the Passover with the blood to distinguish them, because without it, they too would have gone the way of uh, Egypt with the firstborn of Israel even uh, being killed in that night. Um, and this is why uh, even a prostitute can be saved. This is why even a prostitute like Rahab can be saved. Salvation here is not about her uh, moral character or lack thereof. It's about the object of her faith, the one true God. Consider that Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. That is, those who have faith, regardless of their occupations in this life and regardless of their moral or amoral uh, characters. Here uh, is another amazing observation uh, about this passage. In the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, we have a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in that genealogy, we learn that Rahab, the prostitute, was an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? She's a great-grandmother to the King David. And this, so this tells us that after, the, the, after Jericho is conquered, what must have happened is that um, she gave up uh, her profession as a prostitute, entered the tribe of Israel, got married, had children, raised a family. And perhaps this was the uh, fruit of her salvation, not only from the coming judgment of God, but from the sort of uh, degrading life of prostitution uh, that, that was uh, the uh, fruit of the, the, the faith that she had. You see, the story of Rahab is meant to highlight God's gracious nature. There is room for exception to the command to destroy the Canaanites, even if they are sinners, so long as they fear the one true Lord. Uh, To this end, I want to make one final observation before I uh, conclude this sermon. Rahab the the Canaanite is, uh, in storytelling terms, a sort of foil an opposite to another character that's going to come later named Achan in chapter 7, Achan the Israelite. If you don't remember that story, please, you know, we've got two months together in this book. It's a great read. Spend some time reading Joshua and mark my words right now and, and, uh, and, 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 and compare chapter 2 with chapter 7, that Rahab the Canaanite prostitute is an opposite of Achan the Israelite Uh, in the army of Israel, whose story will come in a few weeks. Consider that Achan, an Israelite, will be destroyed because his faith in the God of Israel, we'll see, is half-hearted at best. He will ignore God's command to take nothing from Jericho. God says, when you go to Jericho, complete 
utter destruction, no spoils of war, lay it to waste, even the possessions. But Achan can't help himself and takes some of the, uh, the silver and gold and fine garments and hides them. And this gets him and Israel into trouble and ultimately leads to his destruction by way of capital punishment. Meanwhile, Rahab the Canaanite is spared of punishment because of her obedience to the one true God and even becomes a member of the royal and messianic uh, lineage. And so once again, the, uh, the contrast of the stories of Achan and Rahab demonstrate God's faithfulness to his promises and yet the seriousness of his final judgment for those who reject his grace. And these two points uh, have no ethnic or sort of uh, religious affiliation uh, bounds, markers. All that matters in the end is one's stance towards God. This is all really, really important because it challenges our common notions about what God ought to be like. Usually what we do when we talk about God we uh, sort of craft him in our mind in our own image of what God ought to be like. But a passage like this just shows us what God is like. And we're asked to sort of to, to respect uh, the way that God is. That, God, uh, that, that both judgment and grace are inherent to the nature of God. And all of us are already are condemned without God's provision for rescue. But here's the final hope. Here's the final hope. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, just like Rahab. The blood of Jesus Christ is God's final scarlet cord for all the Rahabs and tax collectors of the world. It's also a warning to all the Achans and Pharisees of the world. So what do we make about the concern about uh, Joshua in that blog post that I just read to you. I hope you see that we must not leapfrog over the story of Rahab in chapter 2 of Joshua. It demonstrates that uh, God's judgment is not arbitrary and that his forgiveness and mercy don't just uh, come much later with the New Testament and Jesus, but are seen as early in the Old Testament with examples like Rahab the Canaanite prostitute. And the rest of Joshua must be read with this passage in mind. The Pharisees and Achans among us uh, ought to be challenged by this story. Yet, it is very, very good news for the Rahabs and tax collectors among us. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.